Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and once again, I'm very excited to be here on air uh, another Thursday evening doing a great show. We're going to be starting off with, of course, uh, the Coach's Corner panel. I'll introduce the guys uh, here in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by uh, my very special guest. He, of course, has been on a number of times, and I'm excited to have him come back. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Peter Kessler, a uh, golf announcer known as The Voice. And you all, I'm sure, if you remember the earlier days of the Golf Channel, you remember him uh, from his many programming uh, attributes, if you will, that he uh, put together for the Golf Channel. So he's going to come on and we're going to talk about uh, some interesting things tonight on the show. So I'm really looking forward to having him uh, back on. It's been a little while. I think it's been about a year since he's been on and uh, I usually try to get him on a couple times. Uh, just a quick uh, note on sponsors. Uh, Golf Talk Live is brought to you by iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing top quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And of course, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teacher professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at golftipsmag.com, and uh, you can get either a print uh, subscription or digital or both. And don't forget to sign up for the e-newsletter as well uh, to get updated on some of the great uh, things that we're going to be doing with the magazine here in a little bit. So make sure you do that. Uh, all right, as I said, um, I'm going to introduce the uh, Coach's Corner panel here, and then we'll bring the guys out, and we'll get into tonight's discussion. Uh, first up, of course, is Tim Kramer. He's a visionary peak performance mind coach with uh, locations in Palm City, Florida, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, he is president and founder of Peak Performance Mind Coaching, a program utilizing innovative and pioneering mind coaching uh, techniques. Uh, also on the panel uh, tonight is John Decker, uh, PJ instructor with uh, GolfSwing.com and motivational speaker. Uh, he's a former teaching professional at the New Albany Country Club, and he's the uh, was the 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, prior to that, of course, he was head instructor at the Grand Cypress uh, Academy of Golf in Orlando, where he worked under top 100 instructors Fred Griffin and, of course, the late Phil Rogers. Uh, he's also uh, authored the book Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which has an accompanying Bible study. Um, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ted. All right, appreciate it, guys. All right, so um, we'll we'll deal with the uh, proverbial elephant in the room, if you will. Uh, as we we all know, there are many areas around not only the United States but literally around the world that are under some form of quarantine. So I know a lot of people um, uh, that are listening to the show are are hunkered down in their home and uh, probably getting a little bored of listening uh, and watching Netflix. So uh, may not have the ability to to get out and hit some golf balls. A lot of golf courses have started closing down. Um, to, uh, you know, adhere to social distancing. Uh, there are still some that are open, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, just because we can't get out there and actually hit some shots, 
that we can't do some things to help prepare uh, for the time when we can get back out there uh, on the golf course. So the guys tonight have, have put together some tips of things that you can do while you're at home, hunkered down, if you will, uh, over the next uh, few weeks or so, or uh, we're not sure exactly how long it's going to be. So I know a lot of you are anxious to get out there. Some of you, as I said, are out there still, um, but we want you to be safe. But at the same time, we don't want to miss, want you to miss opportunities to work and hone on your game uh, while we wait out this period. So uh, John and Tim have put together some points. And John, I think I'm going to start with you. Uh, John's going to handle sort of the physical side of, of the game and offer maybe some tips and drills to, to, that you can do at home to keep uh, tuned up. And uh, Tim is going to uh, help you with some exercises designed to sharpen uh, your mental game. So, uh, John, let's start with you. What was, uh, what was your first tip? Well, Ted, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And, Tim, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what you have to say as well. And I, I look forward to tonight's discussion. Um, when I was at the uh, PGA Championship um, back in, uh, in, at Kiowa, I believe, I believe that was in 2012, um, I was, uh, had the opportunity, I was working with Bob Sowards and, and when I was there, uh, Ricky Fowler was standing right beside me on the putting green. And, and I noticed when he was practicing putting is that he never putted to the hole the entire time that I was there. And I was there for over an hour. He simply put a tee in the ground and he putted to the tee. And so what the listeners out there can do is, is I know that you may be, you may not be able to get to the golf course, but what you do is you take a regular tee. Instead of sticking it in the ground, you turn it upside down, and then you set it so it's so the uh, part that's holding the ball is actually on the ground and is pointing straight up. And then from different distances, you practice putting to the tee. A lot of people will putt to a hole, an indoor hole, but, but in my mind and in Ricky Fowler's mind, that target's too large. The smaller you can make your target, uh, the, the better your distance control is going to get, the better your alignment's going to get. Uh, the better your overall concept of how you putt is going to get because you're fixated on a, a specific target. And it doesn't matter. You, can, you could be three feet from the tee. You could be 30 feet from the tee, depending on how large of an area you have to putt. And obviously, you have to have a surface where you can do this. And I've done this a lot. You know, in Ohio, we get a lot of bad weather, and, and unfortunately, we can't be outside on the putting green. And so when I've done clinics, and we have – have indoor putting green. Instead of putting to the holes, I'll actually have the, the, the students putt to the tee. And, and, and it's really amazing. When you practice putting to something that, that, that is that small, then when you go to the hole, it seems like it's huge. It seems like it's much easier. And, and, and so it's just a great mental way to – and it requires a lot of skill, and, um, and, and it helps you with your distance control um, when you're putting because – um, you don't have anything to stop the, the ball. So if you're hitting the ball way too hard, a lot of times you know, people are lipping out when they hit putts because uh, they're hitting their right. putts too hard. There's nothing to stop it. You know, even if it hits the tee, it's going to keep going. So it gives you an idea, wow, I'm really, really hitting it hard. So if, you, if you're lucky enough, fortunate enough to have a surface where you can do it, and if not, maybe go out and buy some AstroTurf or something like that, something or, or a putting mat or something along those lines, but if you do that, try to putt to the tee, and I really think it's going to help your putting. Yeah, that's a great tip because that's an area, as, as we all know, um, it, which, of course, is part of the short game. But putting particularly, uh, you know, a lot of people can get to the green in two or three shots. Um, but once they get there, you know, now suddenly you're two and three and, and in some cases even four putting. Uh, so you can turn what could potentially be a great round into a horrible round 
because your putting is is not very uh, spot on. So that's a great opportunity if you're, you know, uh, as I said earlier, if you're you know having to hunker down, if you will, for the next few weeks because of uh, current conditions, this is a great opportunity to work on your putting, and you can make uh, you know some little challenges out of it as well. And, and I like the fact, uh, um, you know, putting that tee up there because again, you, you don't have anything to hold it back. Um, great, uh, great tip. Um, Tim, what about yourself? Uh, you know, we, we got to sometimes, uh, do something to clear the old cobwebs, if you will, and, and get out there and work on our game. And, and, uh, I know we can't always do some things, uh, you know, as I say, when you've got a situation like this, but, um, what, what's your, uh, what's your first tip that you want to start with? Yeah, actually, um, I think this is a perfect opportunity to, um, really, begin to tap into what I would like to say is the power of the mind. Uh, I'm going to extend a little on what John said, because I love, I love the, um, I love the idea of the tip. I love the idea of being very specific with the target. And that's great. Have a few thoughts on that, that from a mind coaching perspective, I think can even make it a better drill. Um, Ted, we've talked about this before, but that uh, a big part of what I do is is take what a swing instructor has done and work to improve it. So that really taps into how the the uh, the brain um, uh, works with that skill as opposed to doing things that are separate. Uh, a huge part of my practice has been to make the mind game very practical and certainly less theoretical. So um, I jokingly say that that my style of coaching is certainly not uh, talk therapy. And uh, mm-hmm. so that there are some very practical skills we can do. Now, there is, however, I think, and what makes this uh, obviously a very unique time, I've uh, been talking with several friends of mine, too, that we've never seen a time like this in, uh, in my lifetime. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. uh, probably like, uh, uh, John, I don't know or don't care how old you are, <laughs> but uh, Ted, I know you and I are not uh, spring chickens. And we've never right. seen a challenging time like this globally before. So, so I think it, it, it does offer us a tremendous opportunity to really kind of um, uh, step up to the plate from a mind standpoint in order to um, uh, find new ways of doing things, certainly, but, but uh, good feeling ways of doing things. So getting back to my point, though, it's important, it's important to understand about the brain as it relates to all human performances that the brain does not know the difference between what it imagines and what it sees. So if you're thinking about it, the brain is actively moving toward it. So you could be doing it with your eyes closed in imagination. You can be observing it, but to the brain itself, that thing is happening right now. So, so I do think we can use the power of the mind and drills like this uh, indoors on a putting green, outdoors. Uh, I too lived in Ohio for a while and certainly can appreciate the uh, the uh, wonderful uh, spring weather you guys are going through, I got to believe courses are going to be closed. So with that being said, the one thing I would like to suggest to add to the exercise that uh, John is mentioning, I like to call it the, uh, the, the, the three bears drill. And what that means is we had, we had uh, Papa bear, we had mama bear and we had baby, baby bear. And of course the porridge was too hot, too cold and just right. So I would think that as players, golfers are doing this putting drill, and I love the idea of distance control. I just think that uh, uh, distance probably, John, and you could chime in on this certainly, but I think that distance control sometimes is probably the biggest, uh, one of the bigger uh, errors or faults with with golf uh, in putting. 
Um, but that we use the mind now in the pre-shot routine, in the stroke itself, you can do it open eyes or uh, with open eyes or closed eyes, but to actually take a stroke that we know is way too much. Uh, then what we do is we, we, in turn, we can take a couple of those, whatever. This is a practice drill. The second one was, is we would do a stroke that we know is way too little energy, just not enough. If we just, if we just hit it with that amount of energy, there is no way uh, we would do it. So it's kind of a cause and effect drill in that uh, we eventually, and I think we get very good at dialing into speed with a drill like this, and then, and then basically use the mind to imagine the speed uh, that we want to hit it. I do believe that, that great speed control is done inside the mind, uh, and it's something that we have to perceive and imagine and get the brain really good at, uh, at, at doing. I think that's a great point. And, um, you know, I, I think you have to, you know, Clint uh, Wright, who is uh, also a member of the PGA, has been on the show a number of times, and he always talks about setting benchmarks, uh, in, and particularly in putting. And uh, he uh, certainly doesn't necessarily use the exact same analogy, but the principles are still the same, and that is, you know, setting up benchmarks for distance and things like that. And um, so I, I really like that point, and I think that it, it does work very well with what, uh, what John pointed out. Um, and, and these are things, as I said, that we want the, the listeners to, you know, not just think about, but get out there and actually put into practice while they're, you know, here at home. Uh, you know, everybody's usually got uh, an area that they can putt, uh, especially if you're a serious golfer, I can guarantee you, and they're, uh, you know, especially up in the north uh, uh, parts of the country where they have basements and, and, and are rec rooms, uh, you know, they've got some short carpet uh, usually down there that they're putting and and uh, and whatnot. So there, there's definitely some opportunities if they can't get outside to uh, a putting green. Um, so great points, guys, to start off. Uh, John, let's go to you. What's uh, what's the tip number two? Tip number two for me is is going to be. I think everyone in their home has a full length mirror, and um, you know, working on your setup. Uh, it's early in the season for for the most of the golfers in this country, um, those that obviously down in Florida and Texas and California, maybe have been playing a lot more, but for those that are just getting started, we got to get back to the fundamentals of the setup. And so one of the best ways to do this is to stand in front of a mirror, or you can actually uh, film yourself on your phone and then look at it. Uh, but what you want to do is, and you know, you don't need to actually swing the club to, to improve your golf setup is there's, key fundamentals that I look at in the setup. The first thing is, is I look at your ball position. I want to make sure that the ball, so you actually need to put a ball down, pretend that you're addressing it. This would be a face on view, obviously. And then, and then take your normal setup and then try to get the ball position so that it's right inside of the left heel. Uh, you don't want to have the ball too far back in your stance. Uh, occasionally I'll get a student who plays the ball too far forward in your stance you can also look at your distance from the ball. This would be from the a view where obviously you're turned the other way, and you can look at um, you know how far you're standing from the ball. So you you it's important that your arms are hanging down, nice and relaxed. With the driver, your arms are going to extend a little bit more to the to the golf ball. You don't want to have the arms real close to your body. You don't want to be reaching. And then obviously when you're looking at this view, you can look at your posture. You look at your knee flex. Um, knee flex is something that's very important and there's no there's no uh, specific answer that I can give the listeners out there to how much knee flex to have because it depends on how tall you are it depends on the length of your legs for someone like myself I'm 6'4 I know Ted you're tall as well 
you've got to bend mm-hmm. your knees more. You simply have to bend your yep. knees more um, to get yourself lower, to get your center of gravity lower. Um, so you can look at your weight distribution and you can feel your weight distribution. It's important just in any sport you play, whether it's golf or basketball or tennis, you want to have the weight in the balls of your feet. You don't want the weight back in your heels. So a lot of times what I'll do is when I'm looking at my distance from the ball um, is I'll kind of bounce and get up on almost like a tennis player where I'm trying to bounce on the balls of my feet and say, okay, if I was going to be really athletic, if I was going to shoot a foul shot or if I was going to run or anything, I would want to be on the balls of my feet. I don't want to be in my heels. And when you, when you put the weight in the balls of your feet and then you move the weight to your heels, you'll notice that your hips move back and forward. So if you have the weight too far back in your heels, your center of gravity gets too far away from the ball. And this usually leads to students using a lot of hands and arms in their takeaway. They're not able to use their big muscles because they put themselves in a position where their weight distribution is not correct in their setup. And you got to remember that when you're on the golf course, you're not going you're only going to have 18 really perfect lies. After that, everything is going to be an uphill, downhill, side hill lie, things like along those lines. So it's important also that you take this concept. You can't maybe do it in front of a mirror, but take your cell phone, go out and try to find find some uneven places in the in the yard, in the driveway. Practice your setup. You know, like on an uphill lie, if uh, or you know, in out outside in the grass. You can do this if you're on a hill or slope. Work on uphill lies, getting your shoulders with the slope. Downhill lies, getting your shoulders, you know, going parallel to the slope as well. It's important to, to focus on and practice these things before the season gets start because, started because you want to make sure that your setup is correct. If you have a good setup, and, that, and what I listed there, there's a million things that you can do as far as mirror work goes. I only listed a few there. Um, you know, the, the tilt of your shoulders, all the different aspects of the setup uh, is so critical. And, and it's something when I work with a student, I spend more time working on their setup usually than their golf swing. Because I know if I get their setup right, then their golf swing will naturally start, uh, you know, going the way we want it to go. Yeah, and and that's, I, I think, key really for any, uh, you know, anybody that wants to become a, a good golfer. It all starts with uh, the setup and, and obviously understanding uh, and getting the fundamentals right because you know if if they're not right then you're you're going to start having issues and obviously we don't need to get into all of them but um, once you have those that setup correct then everything sort of falls into place and you'll find that the swing is is much more effortless and easier to accomplish than if you're uh, sort of askew in, in, in different positions and not doing some of the things that, uh, John, that you just pointed out. Um, great point. And, you know, also just very quickly, and then, Tim, I'm going to throw it back to you. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, this is a great time to be working on this, especially when there's no, you know, sports activities out there going on. You can't get out and do a lot of things, and there's really not a lot of other than some replays, and it's, you know, you can only watch so much of that. So there's no excuse for not working on some of these things while you're at home so that when you are able to, to get back out on the golf course and, and uh, enjoy the game, you've, you've got a good foundation to work from. Tim, what's, uh, what's your next tip? Yeah, it's, it's going to sound like I don't have anything original going, but I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to what John is saying and, and hopefully tag teaming on that. <clears throat> One of the concepts that I love that he shared is that, is that the the fundamentals are are so important in terms of setup, and I couldn't agree with you more that in terms of the the physical aspects of the game, 
how you set up the ball is, is just, it's so, so, so critical. Well, in the mind game, we kind of have a, a corollary that would say, get the inside right and the outside begins to fall into place quite effortlessly. So what that means is that when we really do a, uh, a lot of self-awareness on where's my mind at with this whole thing, I believe we give ourselves the greatest opportunity uh, to achieve really, really great things. Um, what that would mean is that, um, uh, and what I would like to see is people are doing the mirror work or out in their backyards or whatever. The, the concept for me from the mind game coaching standpoint that comes to mind is, uh, is commitment. And I love to see them committed to whatever they are doing, uh, kind of right or wrong. Now, a lot of beginning golfers, newer golfers, may not have the level of expertise in terms of looking at something that, yeah, is this really right? They may be questioning it or whatever. But the mindset that I believe is really important is that I don't know if it's right, but it is what I've got. It's the best that I've got. And, and it is what I'm bringing to the equation right now because from a mind coaching perspective, I would sooner, uh, I liken it almost to the, um, to the prize boxer with the mindset of uh, if I'm going down, at least I'm going down swinging. And <laughs> so I would sooner see them set up and commit to that and believe that something good could happen and sit there and almost second guess themselves. It's very easy to do, you know, well, is this right? Is my foot right? Is my knee flex right? Is this or that? Because, you know, as John so masterfully pointed out, knee flex changes based on a lot of things and the swing does change. But so let's at least get a confident, committed mindset. Bring that to whatever you're doing when you're doing these things. And, and hopefully what I'm trying to give the, the listeners a sense of is let's, let's combine these two skills. Let's not, let's not make it the physical game and then let's not make it just the mind game. Let's use the two together and almost like with exponential results. Yeah, and another uh, great point as well, Tim. You know, I, I look at it this way. One of the one of the problems that a lot of our, our regular <coughs> sort of club golfers and our, our high handicap golfers have is, you know, it, it's like going to the airport. They're bringing instead of just bringing the one bag they need, they're bringing all kinds of bags with them, and they're just loaded <laughs> down with baggage. So when they get to that first tee. Um, you know, th like you said, they're thinking about all kinds of different things instead of just focus focusing on the presence, you know, the shot at hand, they're thinking about past uh, events that they've been involved with, maybe the tournament last week, or maybe even the last hole played that maybe didn't go the way they want. So they're bringing a lot of baggage to every shot. And that's where, you know, sort of mind coaching really uh, can be beneficial. So that was a great, uh, a great point. Um, John, uh, what's, what's next on the agenda for tips? Well, I want to talk about the physical side. I mean, obviously, a lot of people who are hunkering down, maybe uh, over and indulging in, in food and, and, and adult beverages at this time. So uh, we want to make sure that we're in golf shape and golf readiness. And um, Dr. Angelica Napolitano, uh, I, uh, you know, do the podcast, and we've had, the, had her on your show as well uh, several times, uh, Ted. And, and I asked her, I said, you know, for, for me at my age, and I'm in – my early fifties, I said, you know, what is the, what is the best abdominal uh, exercise that I can do? And she said, by far the plank and a plank is, it, I don't, I don't want to get into the details of that, but if you'll just go on YouTube and how to do a plank, if you don't know how to do a plank, 
It's a simple way. You, I don't care if you're in a hotel room, if you're in your home, you don't need any equipment. You just get down on the floor and basically you start building up. And I, I kind of do anywhere from two to three minutes and then I'll take a rest and then I'll do maybe some more uh, as I'm working out. But it's a great way to strengthen your core. Your core is your engine in golf. You need to have a strong core. Another way to, have a, to develop your core is to use a medicine ball. Uh, now you don't need a 10 or 15 pound medicine ball. Anything from uh, for for some uh, for anywhere from like two or three pounds up to about six pounds. Eight pounds is about as much as you need to go with. But with the medicine ball, you can work on your takeaway. Uh, it's a there's some great. I've got some YouTube videos. If you go on, I'll give you that information at the end um, about how to use it for your takeaway. You can use it in tossing. So you can get out there with your with your husband or wife and, and you can toss the ball back and forth and stand about 15 feet away from each other, get in the golf position, swing the ball back and then turn and toss it to your partner. And, and then you just kind of toss it back and forth. That's a great way to warm up. It's a great way to use your golf muscles and make sure that when you're doing it, you're doing it as if you're hitting a golf shot. Um, and, and I think that's, I do that with my students all the time. I also recommend this the uh, the orange whip. I think that is the best uh, one of the best devices I've seen. It's the if you go online, you can buy, and they're right around a hundred dollars. But uh, it's a great way to actively swing and keep your flexibility and your strength, and work on your balance and all your core muscles. And you can do it in your yard. You can do it in your basement. If you have enough room to swing a golf club, you can you can do it. Um, and then the most important stretch in golf is a, a, another stretching teaching device. I saw it at the show this year. I was very impressed with it. Um, again, if you go online, you can, you can order those. So a lot of people right now have the time to go online. They have the time to order these things. And within a couple of days, they'll have them at their doorstep. They can get swinging. They can, uh, you know, actively get their, their, their bodies in motion and hopefully take off some of those pounds that they may have packed on uh, over the last week or two. Well, rest assured, I think uh, that's a great point. I think I'll be uh, working on the plank uh, myself because I know I need some uh, some help in that in that area. So that might be something that uh, I need to uh, you know to to do. But um, uh, but no, that, that's a great point. You know, really talking about the core um, because that that sets up. You know, not only uh, is it obviously healthy for you to, to have a good strong core, but uh, again, it affects so much. Uh, of your game, um, your posture particularly. If you've got a very weak core area, um, then you tend to slump over to, to compensate, and and uh, you know you get into all kinds of uh, funky positions uh, in your setup. And and uh, so working on your core, and a lot of people do uh, a lot of exercises. And here's the thing: there's a lot of great core exercises out there, but some of them may not be. Uh, obviously, the ones you've given an example to, John, are. But there's a lot out there that may not necessarily be. Um, what you need to do if you're a golfer. Um, so you really want to uh, get with somebody who is uh, really knowledgeable in the fitness side of things, particularly somebody that's certified in golf fitness, uh, because they may have some specific exercises and things in addition to what John's just given uh, that can really help uh, firm up the core. So uh, a great uh, great point as well, uh, John. Uh, Tim, let's uh, come back to you. What uh, What's next? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that uh, when we talk about core physical, that I want to go with a core mind concept here. 
And the, the concept that is very important to me that I share with uh, invariably with just about every student I coach privately, and certainly uh, um, they, they get this, is that if we think about it, that, that all, all negative thoughts, all negative thinking, and, and that's pretty easy right now. We've got a lot, you know, we've got a lot of uh, probably uh, worrisome or negative or fearful thoughts going on right now, but, but we bring it back to all of our power um, is really right now, just in this moment. Uh, even if you think about on the golf course or if you think about now uh, in terms of what's going on, that all negative thinking always surrounds thoughts about one of two things, and that's the past or the future. Now, in golf, we, we, it's very easy to hit a few bad shots, um, get scared about the past, and then skip the now and project it right into the future. And so we've got a mind that is bouncing all over the place when really the stability that we need is just getting into a really great space uh, right now. So, so if we were to talk about core mind activities, it would just be using the breath to just uh, really uh, almost like a breath at, the, at a time just using the breath to just just breathe in this feeling of uh, you know you know what just just right now just let's just let's just take care of right now because um, and I'm not trying to minimize anything that's going on uh, kind of out there and I'm certainly trying to encourage golfers that this is a great skill in terms of golf if if you can't take care of the now in golf, um, you really are never going to optimize your game because uh, you're going to be tense. You're going to be, the body will be locking up. Uh, you're going to be worried. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be angry, all those negative emotions. So very fond of saying, just take care of the now and, and it all begins to fall into place. Uh, otherwise the mind is, is, is straying in too many wild directions and um, it never helps us to get into that centered, empowered space where really all of our all of our internal power is at. So yeah, I love love the idea again of what John said. Let's let's get the core, the physical core, stabilized, and and uh, let's uh, let's add a little mind power with that, staying in the now, and um, and uh, you know just give ourselves the best opportunity we've got. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, again, another great, uh, great point. You know, it's interesting, guys, when you when you look at really arguably one of the best players that that played this game, Jack Nicklaus. And you know, if you've seen his video, which was out many years ago, "Golf My Way," you know he talked about at the beginning of every season how he would get out and he would always start with working on the fundamentals. You know, uh, back then. Uh, you know, the, the tour wasn't playing uh, as, as long throughout the season, so there was a, a little bit of a break for many of the players. So a lot of times he would do other things. Um, you know, he obviously is a, uh, a very uh, top quality or a high quality, if you will, um, fly fisherman. He enjoyed doing that and other outdoor sports uh, and, and activities. And, you know, so obviously his, his mind was at rest from golf. But when he came back out at the beginning of the season, one of the things that he did is you know, he, he wasn't rebuilding a swing. He wasn't making a lot of changes. He was certainly working on the fundamentals and, and, and that. But what was interesting, he talked about one of the reasons why he went out and played a few rounds before every major, and particularly with Augusta National, he would go out for the week before and play several rounds before the Masters. And it wasn't because he was getting the rust off of his clubs or, or that sort of thing. He was mentally preparing himself 
for the challenge that was ahead. So uh, again, you know, he knew that he was going to hit some bad shots along the way, but he knew mentally that he had to be prepared if he had any hope and chance of winning those events. And obviously we know by his, his record uh, that obviously he, he had a lot of a success and it wasn't because he was the best ball striker or he hit the furthest. Uh, certainly he was out driving a lot of people at that time, but uh, it wasn't his distance that was winning him. It was his, his uh, you know, mental capacity or his mind uh, strength that was uh, helping him navigate, especially in the majors. Um, so that's a really great point, um, Tim. Thank you, uh, John. Um, let's see if we've got another uh, a good tip in the bag for uh, for the folks listening. Well, this is a tip uh, that you're most likely going to have to do outside. But the good news is you can do this in your yard. Uh, you're not going to be hitting the ball very far. Uh, what you're going to do is just simply take a laundry basket. Uh, and put it out maybe uh, start out maybe put it five yards away from you and practice hitting balls into the laundry basket and you can, doesn't have to be a basket be anything it could be a bucket anything where where you can where you have a visual target and you're trying to hit and it's just like playing catch or whatever and and get work on your skill then start moving back farther and farther and farther from the basket depending on how much room you have and the reason this is so important pitching is 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 one of the most important shots in golf because for the average golfer, the average golfer is not going to hit really any greens in regulation. Uh, they're going to because if you're an 18 handicapper, that that's essentially uh, you're a bogey golfer, okay? And that means mm-hmm. you, in theory you're you're not hitting you're not hitting one green in regulation if you're if you're a true 18 handicapper. Uh, unless you're a, just a really bad putter and you're hitting a lot of greens and you're three putting, now that's a whole different story. But 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 the pitch shot is a shot. Whether it's your, you know, Clint uh, Wright always talks about the most important shot is the third shot, and typically the third shot is the pitch shot. This the play, the golfer out there, they hit their drive, they hit their second shot, and they're 20, 30 yards short of the green. So if you can learn to be good at the pitch shot then guess what? Your putting gets better. Because if I can pitch it up there three or four feet from the hole versus 20 feet from the hole, I'm going to make more three and four footers than 20 footers. I don't care whether it's a tour player or beginner. uh, That's just common sense. So the closer you can hit the ball to the hole, obviously the easier it's going to be on your putting. And then as your putting gets better, uh, all of a sudden, when you're one putting, you have a confidence that you're a better putter. So that if you do hit a green in regulation, then all of a sudden your confidence is up. But if you're hitting the ball, if you're pitching, a lot of times people, uh, when I watch them in their pitch shots, they'll hit a terrible pitch shot, and then they'll three-putt, and then they talk about their three-putt. And I really explain to them, well, if you'd hit a better pitch shot, that that wouldn't have been a three-putt. The pitch shot was what set up the three-putt. So a lot of times in golf, we always – we kind of we get frustrated and we work on that one thing that we think is wrong, but it's really what is setting that up. That that has a lot to do, um, you know, with with whether you're truly evaluating your game the way you should be. And it's very, it's I've I've noticed that golfers um, that that I typically work with, um, you know, and even at the tour player level, having sometimes do not look at their their gains real in a realistic manner um and so what what you need to do at the end of your round is start keeping the stats and that and the stats will never lie okay wow i only hit two greens in regulation or i hit you know i hit 
14 greens in regulation, but I had, you know, 36 putts, you know, so then, okay, let's work on your putting or let's work on your proximity to the hole. So learning, learning, uh, you know, I've kind of got a little bit sidetracked here in my conversation, but having a better understanding of your game, when you go back and you really look and assess it for the average golfer that's out there, if you're in the mid handicap range, you're going to have so many pitch shots in a round of golf. So if you can get good at that pitch shot and practice hitting the laundry basket, you're definitely going to lower your scores this year. Yeah, that's a that's another really great point too. And you know, while you were talking, I was I was you know trying to think of some players that that really fell into that category that that had a really good third shot or pit shot. And and uh, a golfer that I used to watch um, when I was a little bit younger was Ray Floyd uh, or Raymond Floyd rather. And you know, he certainly wasn't the longest ball hitter in in, in uh, on the tour at that time. Um, he was certainly fairly accurate, but he was very, very accurate when it came to his approach to the green and particularly his pitch shots. And he did exactly what you talked about is he, he put himself in position for a much shorter opportunity to putt. Um, certainly, you know, uh, things can happen and, and, uh, you know, shots can, can go astray and you might have a, a 20 or 30 putt, but he was able to really focus on, and he had an incredible short game. Uh, and that's why he, he did as well as he did on, on tour. So you might want to Google some old videos of Ray, uh, Raymond Floyd and just watch uh, what he did. He was very, very good at Augusta National as well, particularly on some of those slick greens because of that. Um, Tim, what's, uh, what's next in, in the bag of, uh, of uh, mind, uh, mind coaching? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, defer to the example or the uh, certainly the exercise that uh, John is recommending. And but the one thing that I want to say, I I do believe that with in the mind game, that the one intangible, you know, we we've gotten really good at, at mapping the brain now, and and even mapping emotions within the brain, and and we kind of know how you know neurons are firing, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's all great, and and I love the mind stuff. But the one intangible. We have not yet been able to measure, and I'm not sure that we'll be able to. Um, and that would be that would be the emotion of belief. That how much can I stand over a shot, believing that something is uh, there, something good is about to happen? Um, we know the way again that the the mind works, the brain works, is that is that we really, the mind directs the body in the direction of either the belief or the doubt that we are experiencing before we hit the ball. So I think, again, that any exercise we do, and whether it's, it's, the, whether it's the, uh, the pitching, I, I agree the third shot is just critical, uh, and, and I love everything I'm hearing. The component that I would like to suggest, though, that we bring into whatever we do as a physical skill is we stand, the, we stand there believing to the best of our ability that something really good is about to happen so that we begin to train ourselves and to train the brain and to train the mind to let go of emotions of doubt and replace them with emotions of belief. Now, the key in the mind game is to be able to do that in spite of proof and results because Otherwise, if we can only believe that we're good because of the proof that we see, um, we're kind of in for a pretty rocky road because in this game, uh, those of us who have played it really do know, and, and we've already said that tonight, you know, you don't hit 
you don't hit a lot of perfect shots in this game. In fact, on some days you don't really even hit that many good shots and you can still score pretty well. But so that we have to be able to use the mind to get a mind state of belief out in front of performance. And when we do that, um, that good things happen. Now that to me is a drill and a skill that we can certainly do. I don't care if you're putting, I don't care if you're chipping, I don't care if you're driving. You can stand there feeling anxiety, you can stand there feeling doubt, or you could stand there feeling belief. And it's, it's my firm belief that whichever of those emotions we access are what begin to, um, to uh, we begin to assimilate that into the physical and, you know, mental parts of the game. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, Tim, because, again, I can think back over the years, and we see this from time, you know, time to time, uh, even at the tour level, uh, where a player, you know, maybe the first couple of rounds they're in contention and everything is going fantastic and you think boy they've got this in the bag and then come Sunday all of a sudden it's like the wheels fell off the bus and they can't do anything right and it's not that their ability to hit the golf ball has suddenly disappeared or evaporated it's because mentally and emotionally something has changed and that confidence level has now started to to and especially if they've had some difficult uh holes or what have you along the way suddenly it erodes and and chisels away at that uh uh, that that mind strength, if you will, in that round. And we've seen people, I don't know how many times on a Sunday afternoon, where all of a sudden you're thinking, wow, what, what happened to you? Um, and suddenly right. they've lost the tournament, right? And we hear that analogy right. all the time. Sure. Well, it's, it's now their, their tournament sure. to lose. So that, that really, you know, it, it, it's um, really sort of hammers that point home. Um, John, when I think go we're up. To, yeah, go ahead, Tim. No, go ahead, please. Oh, no, no, I was going to say an example of that is uh, some, uh, a few years ago, uh, Jim Herman is one of the guys that I work with on the tour. And Jim won the, in 2016, won the Shell Houston Open. Now, I, I know I was a thousand times more nervous sitting here watching him on TV than he was on the course, although maybe not. But what amazed me was that, he, that there was a backup on the course, and he had to stand on the 18th hole waiting for eight minutes to tee off. Now there is right. it's it's a long hole it's par four, there is water all the way down the left it's a tight fairway, uh, there was bunkers and trouble on the right and he waits eight minutes. I do remember watching him and he went to put on his golf club about three or four minutes into that and all of a sudden he just took it right off put it back on his bag and and I and, and it was pretty impressive to me because that told me. He was really present enough and in that present moment to stay very focused. And he ended up just, you know, obviously won the tournament, but striped it down the middle of the fairway and then knocks it up on the green two putts. And uh, it was, it was wonderful, but um, uh, yeah, the ability really to stay in the present moment to me is uh, uh, Ted, I couldn't agree with you more. I think more tournaments at the tour level are won or lost because of the ability to um, stay in the now or, uh, or let uh, past holes or future anxieties or what, you know, the, the, the what may happens uh, into the mind. And, man, once they get in there, it is not, not generally a pretty, pretty picture. No, and, and I can guarantee you that virtually every um, – uh, and, again, obviously if it's happening at the tour level, it's happening with, with many of our high handicappers. But I can guarantee you that probably a very high percentage of all golfers – when they head to the golf course, they are thinking about past rounds and not in a, in a positive light. And that is part of the problem. And that's what I was talking about earlier about dragging, you know, all of this baggage 
uh, if you will, to, to every, uh, you know, every hole and particularly with the first tee because it, it's like, you know, I, I use this analogy, first impressions. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you want to give a first good impression. Well, it's the same thing when you're going to that first tee. You want to really be focused and, and really sort of bringing your best. And even if you don't hit a perfect shot, but if your mindset is such that you're there with, with you know, a lot of positive energy and, you're, you're, you know, you, you know that you've got the game to, to, to be able to hit to, uh, some good shots, um, that's what you want to step up the first tee. Because if you're, if you're coming up there and you're negative and you're thinking, well, gosh, you know, I was out last weekend and just nothing went right and I, I know this hole's bad. And right away you've set yourself up um, and your anxiety level starts increasing. And then once you start crossing that threshold with a lot of negative thoughts and a lot of, um, you know, just bad energy, then ultimately what you've done is you've set yourself up for a, a defeat in that round. And more than likely what's going to happen is each hole is going to progressively get worse. And uh, you, you just can't do that. So it's very, very important to some of the things that we're talking about here tonight. I think this is the time now to really be focusing on a lot of that. So, John, I think we're probably up to about number five now. So uh, what's your what's your final tip for the evening? Well, this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, when I was uh, at Oak Hill with, uh, working with Bob um, Sowards um, at the PGA Championship, um, Angel Cabrera was putting uh, right beside us. We were on the putting green. It was, uh, it was, I think it was Tuesday of the practice round. And um, I, I was watching him. Um, Bob went to the, to the locker room, so I had a few minutes, and I was just sitting there watching him. And he actually he had a heel-shafted putter. And um, and one thing I know is if you win the U.S. Open and you win the Masters, you're a really good putter. So I really wanted to pay attention to what he's doing. And so he he laid he laid the club down on the on the ground, just one of his like a five iron. And then he actually put the heel of the 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 uh, of his putter on that and used it kind of like a track, swinging back and forth. And and then he took a, he got the he got it perfectly lined up and it was a left to right breaking putt and it was about 15 feet, and um and so then he took a magic marker and he put the magic marker down uh, on the green and actually put, put in a spot there and I was thinking to myself what's he doing, and then all of a sudden Tiger Woods walks over, and Tiger Woods and I and just he was Tiger was f- five feet from me we sat there and watched him putt for about 15 minutes. And it was amazing watching him use that club to, to have the heel stay on the club and the toe would pass the heel as he would hit it. So he was releasing the putter. Now, if you have a heel shafted putter, uh, you can use one club. If you have a center weighted uh, face balance putter, then you can do it with two. And, and, or you can use two by fours, anything like that, that you can put down on the ground and you can do this indoors. You don't have to be on the, on the golf course to do it. But what it does is, is it kind of gives you that track. And this is not anything that I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard before, but you need to know what kind of putter you have. And so the way you do this is you lay the putter on your finger. So you find the balancing point. Okay. And so, so if you, if I can take any club in my bag and I can lay it on my finger. And if it's perfectly balanced, uh, if the toe of the putter points to the ground, that is a toe-weighted putter, then you only need to use the one club. If the face of the putter points to the sky, then you have a, then you have a face-balanced putter, and then you put the two tracks down or the two, two, two clubs or two boards or whatever you want to do it to help you to keep that you know, more stable. Great way to practice indoor putting 
And uh, it's my, one of my favorite stories because I kept thinking to myself, if Tiger Woods is watching you, then you're doing something, mm. you know, in, in the game of golf. You're doing something that's really <laughs> worth watching. And and so I was uh, – I'll never forget that story. And and uh, and, the, and I saw the, the camaraderie between them. I just kind of tried to stay out of the way and be quiet. But um, it was a, an experience I'll never forget. You know, and it just goes to show you that even – the best players in the world can learn something from another player or another individual. And, you know, uh, Jack has done that many, many times. I've heard him talk about it in, in several interviews that, you know, um, people have actually, um, you know, given him a putter, you know, when he was not putting as well and said, try this. And he would, you know, off the top of his head would kind of think, well, I just don't get it. And this, you know, isn't going to be what, and, you know, they would say to him, you need to do this because you're doing such and such. And, and uh, it was very interesting. I've watched him in a lot of different interviews talking about things like that. So yeah, you can be the best player in the world, uh, but you're always learning. And that's the one beauty of this game is you're always learning um, no matter what level you're at. Tim, uh, your final point for the evening. The only thing I'm going to say is that uh, I think this is a perfect opportunity to really become um, uh, from a, from a mind game coaching standpoint, uh, what I love to see with my players is that they become increasingly aware of of their thoughts and their emotions, and, and uh, really it boils down to one of two things. Um, does the thought that, is the thought that I'm thinking right now uh, about my game, about what I'm about to do, about the physical skill, about whatever, does that thought feel good or does that thought not feel good? And I would just really encourage that takes really high level of self-awareness because a lot of times we'll try to fool ourselves. Oh yeah, this, this feels great. Uh, this doesn't feel great, but to really encourage them to gain a sense of self-awareness that they can then bring into not just golf, but really every aspect of their lives. Um, the, the kind of the, the, the joke that I, that I use is that uh, so because we've known this about the mind game for a long, long time, is that like it's like there's a pond out there to the to the right, and and all of a sudden it's like we've we've known for a long time, you know, I cannot, I just, I, I can't think about the water, I cannot think about hitting it in the water. So what do we do? And the answer is, well, you know what, I need to, I need to figure out, uh, I, yep, I need to hit it down the middle of the fairway instead. So we stand up on the tee and. If you're ready, not thinking about the water, thinking about the middle of the fairway. Okay, there's the middle of the fairway. Boom, we hit it. Slice it right into the water. And right. the, the question always is, why did I do that? And the answer is because you weren't really focused on and believing that you could hit it in the middle of the fairway. And on a deeper level, you were still more scared of making a mistake and hitting it into the water than you were in feeling the success of having something happen that you did want to have happen. So really when we use the mind, what we really want to start doing is using it in a way that um, in every moment we can focus on what we want or what we don't want. And I just think even, you know, I'll go, go a little bit on a soapbox here, but it's a great opportunity not just in golf but what, with what is going on in the world around us to just use our minds a little bit more maybe mindfully to focus on the, on, on the things that we want to see, uh, certainly mm-hmm. in our lives and for the lives of those we care about and love and, and really the, the planet. We can use the mind to do that or we can use the mind in a not-so-positive way 
to focus on the mistakes and the golf shots and the things we don't like, which also, you know, kind of come to be. So a great opportunity uh, right now to, to, in my world, to use the mind as, as proactively and effectively as we can. And, and uh, you know, and, and yeah, I, I do think there's just so many things in this sport we can do <laughs> indoors and in the backyard. We don't have to be, again, the brain doesn't know the difference. If you can, if you can use the mind, wrap it around to imagine you're doing some wonderful things in golf and uh, uh, that's what is what will begin to happen. So I think it's, um, I think it's a tremendous opportunity to use the power of the mind. Yeah. What a great way to, to wrap up uh, our discussion tonight, you know, just, just to sort of, I guess, piggyback a little bit on that, you know, we all get caught in the trap um, in our mind of, Sometimes feeding, you know, what, what you put in uh, affects who you are. And obviously we have to be mindful of, of um, you know, the reporting that's going on right now. We have to be, um, you know, good stewards of information and, and be cognizant of what's going on around us. But that doesn't mean that you have to get into it 24-7. And what's happening right now uh, certainly to a lot of people has become very, very scary and very worrisome. Um, but I, I look at it this way. It's, it's just, you know, something else. Many other things have happened in, uh, you know, our history. And um, we certainly, again, have to do our part to combat whatever we may be faced with. But I think that if you get sucked into this continual cycle and, and listen to information, um, again, 24-7, that's of a negative nature, um, then you're you're going to just get to a point where you're becoming depressed and, and, and obviously people are starting to feel anxious and anxiety. So this is a great opportunity listening to tonight's show just to have a distraction. Now that doesn't mean that you don't, uh, you know, be aware of what's going on around you and, and being ready to take action, whatever that may be or whatever you're being asked to do or required to do, but don't get so absorbed in the messages that are coming out right now that you stop living your life. So we want you to take the information that we've given you here tonight on the Coach's Corner panel that uh, two great professionals, John Decker and, and Tim Kramer, um, have intertwined very nicely this evening uh, our discussion, uh, both on the mind game and also on the physical parts of the game. So we hope you take that information. And uh, I'm going to give each of them here just a moment. Uh, let the folks know where they can uh, tune in uh, or get in touch with, with either one of them. And, uh, and then we'll uh, get ready to, to finalize uh, the Coach's Corner panel. So um, I'm going to go in the order that we started. So, John, go ahead, let the folks know if they want to reach out and, and get in touch with you. And, uh, and uh, you mentioned uh, about uh, on YouTube. So do that and then, Tim. Well, Ted, thanks. first of all, thanks again for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. And, Tim, it was a pleasure. I really learned a lot listening to you tonight as well. Um, I'm, uh, I work with golfswing.com. If you go to golfswing.com forward slash John Decker, and that's one word, J-O-N. I spell my first name J-O-N, uh, D-E-C-K-E-R. Um, there's over three. There's about 300 videos that I have uh, on that on that website. Or you can go to YouTube uh, and go under John Decker Golf Instruction, and I have um, over 200 videos. A lot of the things that I talked about uh, t- tonight are, are on. Uh, uh, on on YouTube. Also, um, I have a face my Facebook page, uh, John Decker Golf Instruction. 
uh, on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My book, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, is sold online at Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And I now have a Bible study. Uh, I've had about 13 churches around the country that have participated. If you're interested in having me uh, come to your church or to just send you the information, you can launch it yourself at your church. Uh, I would love to do that. I also do public speaking at churches, golf courses, uh, civic organizations. Uh, reach out to me uh, on social media, and I'd be glad to to come to your area and uh, speak or launch a Bible study and, um, and or do a clinic. I can do really all of those. So, again, Ted, thank you, and for what you do, uh, I know that uh, you – you have really worked hard, and, and I'm really, really happy for you with all the great things that are happening with iGolf and, every, and, and Golf Tips Magazine. Again, congratulations on that, on that acquisition. Well, I appreciate that, John, and I look forward to you um, playing uh, a, a lot of different roles uh, in, that, uh, in those ventures as well as uh, do, uh, I, I do with Tim. Uh, Tim, go ahead. Let the uh, folks know how they can reach out and, and uh, uh, connect with you as well. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ted. And I do want to second what uh, what John had to say. It's always just a real honor and a pleasure. Uh, truthfully, a lot of fun to be on your show. Uh, uh, I rarely do I am I on the show with uh, with the same uh, people. Uh, John, great meeting you, and of course, listening to your insights and uh, uh, very inspiring to me. Also, uh, best way to reach me is through uh, Peak uh, our website, which is peakperformancemindcoaching.com. Uh, we're in the process of redoing a website, so I have to be one of those who kind of says that um, uh, this time off uh, from the private coaching, and, and I do clinics throughout the country, mind coaching clinics and, um, and events and things like that, that this time off has really been a great gift for me to be able to spend a little more time uh, developing materials which were, which were uh, needed, so... Uh, we'll be out there in full force soon with a um, – we'll be rolling out several Mind Game online coaching programs, which I'm very excited about. Uh, notably, most notably, we have what we call Thoughts of the Day. Uh, I've just uh, – our, our marketing – my marketing staff just came through and told me that we started Thoughts of the Day back in, um, I guess, about 2006 – uh, and from what I understand, it's been open now worldwide more than 7 million times since we began. So uh, we wow. are very excited about that. I get, I get, I get uh, readers almost every week, and particularly right now with what's going on, uh, just, uh, just people who are writing in and you know, what do I think about all this and just try and you know, keep them, keep them uh, uh, on board <laughs> and stable and whatever. But, um, so Thoughts of the Day is an option right now. That, that, more information on that through the website book out called skills and drills peak performance uh, techniques for the athletic mind been very well received by the golf community and um uh yeah my my uh, my email contact information are on there and, and we look forward to uh to moving the mind game forward in tandem with the uh with the physical parts of the game and and uh, i'm very passionate about combining it with the physical parts of the game i i, I think that a great swing with a bad attitude uh, gets us nowhere, and I think a great attitude without a good swing gets us equally nowhere. So I do believe that it's combining all those elements. Again, Ted, thanks for what you do. Awesome and inspiring, and certainly look forward to the days and, and you know weeks and months ahead with you. So it'll be great. Well, perfect. Thank you very much, guys. And, and again, I appreciate uh, 
giving a lot of great insight and a lot of great tips tonight for, for the folks out there that are, are really looking forward uh, to getting back out there. Well, here's some things that you guys can now do at home while you wait for that opportunity. So John and Tim, thank you very much. Uh, keep up the great work and uh, I will uh, talk to you guys next time here on the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks again. All right, that was uh, John Decker and Tim Kramer uh, rounding out the Coach's Corner panel for this week. Uh, and uh, again, a special thanks to John for filling in uh, for one of the other guys that uh, unfortunately wasn't able to make it tonight. So um, we want you all to be safe out there. All right, I'm really excited about my next guest. Uh, he's been on the show uh, a number of times now. Of course, you, uh, if you've been following golf for any length of time, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, of course, uh, I'm referring to Peter Kessler. He is uh, known as the uh, golf announcer, known as the the voice. Uh, he was the voice of HBO Sports from 1990 through 1995, uh, narrating Peabody, Ace, and Emmy award-winning documentaries, including uh, When It Was a Game, uh, When It Was a Game 2, and the boxing trilogy in this corner, and The Sweet uh, Science. Uh, he was the premier talent at Golf Channel from 1995 through 2002, and hosted, wrote, and produced uh, over 1,300 live one-hour episodes of four different shows, uh, including one uh, called Golf Talk Live, Academy Live, Viewers Forum, and Masters Highlights. Uh, he's been an active fixture in golf, uh, uh, in the golf industry and has been featured in multiple golf publications around the world, including cover stories in Golf World and Golf Week. Uh, and his expertise and historical acumen uh, was the subject of a 10-page profile and interview in Golf Digest. So please welcome back my very special guest, Mr. Peter Kessler. Good evening, Peter. How are you? Uh, I, am, I am delighted <laughs> to be with you, Ted. I'm doing fine. I, On Thursdays, I go from my home in Orlando to where my son lives in the Villages, which is the largest retirement community in the world, and he's a chiropractor. But the real reason I go up every Thursday is because my best friend is his dog, Bodie. So I get up there at nine o'clock on Thursday morning and we do a two hour walk and he knows I won't leave him for the whole day. And I just left him and got in the car. So I hope it sounds good because I been really looking forward to talking with you and was delighted when you asked me to show up tonight. Well, as always, Peter, I enjoy uh, you've got so many great stories to share with the audience and it's always a pleasure to have you uh, join the program. All right, what I want to do tonight, Peter, is uh, I know it's been a little while since you've been on the show. Uh, I believe it was earlier last year. I think it was around May you were on, and uh, we talked about it that time. It's very hard to, very com- hard to get on, very hard to get on that show. <laughs> you, gotta, you have right. to have a lot of connections to get on this show. I had to call like <laughs> 10 people in L.A. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> I wish that were true. No, actually, this I, I gotta uh, I gotta digress real quick. This season, uh, more so than other, any other season, has been phenomenal. I was at the PGA Show in January, and really connected with a lot of great people, and and uh, it's just been incredible this season. I'm I'm booked for uh, quite a bit, so I, I was glad that uh, I was able to have you come on. All right, one of the things that we talked about last time, Peter, we talked about a lot of different players and 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 uh, some of the top players in the world like Tiger and, and Jack uh, that have been, you know, just incredible to watch over the years and to, to really learn from. But one thing that we, we wanted to talk about and we didn't get a chance to do before last season ended, 
and that was really the other side of the game, and that's the teaching professional, and uh, you agreed to come back on. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight and get your thoughts because you've had the opportunity through uh, both the Golf Channel and just your own personal experiences have really had an opportunity to see and be alongside some of the best in the business. So I want to get your thoughts. Um, who are some of the best in your mind and why? Best teachers? Yes. Well, I had, I've had more lessons and or spent more time with more different teachers than probably anybody else ever. Uh, the numbers are such that when I was at the Golf Channel, we did, uh, I don't know, close to a, I don't know, seven or 800 of the teaching show. So I had 500 different teachers on shows over a seven-year period. Now, in addition to having literally every great teacher of the last century who was alive on a show, um, it's also true that there's a great number of players who are great teachers. And one of the things that happened to me was that in getting ready to do a show, I would research the show like I would, like you research a show to get ready to talk to me. And so what I would you know, try to do is read everything that they wrote and everything written about them. So I really understood the methodology before they joined me so I could ask the best, you know, most precise questions that were related to the way in which the teacher taught. So what happened was I was about a two handicap when we started that show in 1995. I was a 75 shooter. A year after that show started, where we had 50 teachers on for two nights each, so it's 100 shows, I literally couldn't break 100 within a year from shooting 75. And I mean, I actually, I actually couldn't break a hundred because I had never had swing thoughts. Really. I might have one, but I never had a checklist of any kind. And there was no no shot that I was intimidated by or afraid to hit or anything like that when, when I could play. And then the next thing I knew I was thinking my way through my swing, but I was doing it through the methodology of 50 teachers. So, Right. I like in in terms of now let's talk about a couple of players who actually could do both Claude Harmon who was Butch's dad was the head mm -hmm. pro at Wingfoot Golf Club in Maranek New York where they're supposed to have the US Open in June and of course it's going to be at the very least postponed now Claude was the head pro there for a long time and his best friend was Ben Hogan now, while he was the club pro at Wingfoot giving lessons to the members, he won the Masters in 1948 by a handful of shots. So you're talking about a really fine player. And Mr. Hogan, as the whole family called him, would spend a lot of time um, with the Harmon family, with Claude, and then all of Claude's sons, who the four Harmon brothers, I did a TV show with them at the same time, which was absolutely hilarious more than it was anything else. But so there've been some players who are great teachers, like a Claude Harmon. Another player who was a great teacher was Sam Sneed. Now I met Sam in 1974 at the LA open. And those days nobody went to golf tournaments. And I showed up at the range on a Monday night of the LA open in 74 where Sneed at the age of 62 would finish second to Dave Stockton and he took Dave to the 72nd hole. 
So 62-year-old Sam Snead is on the range by himself, nobody else watching any players. And that was the way it was in those days. The players went to the range and like, nobody knew to go down and watch the players. I went down. So I went and sat behind Sam on the Monday, and then I ended up sitting with him Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night alone, and we had dinner a couple of times at, by this point, and we had become friendly. But Sam really believed that there was one great way, and a lot of teachers agree with this, so I'm getting to your question, that there was one great way to be able to self-teach and he believed that the way in which you did that was either with a pitching wedge, which he preferred over a sand wedge. Today we would use a sand wedge because they go a little farther, and, um, and the shot is 50 yards. And what Sam wanted you to do was, to the exclusion of everything else, hit shots from 50 yards, and you could hit 20% of them from closer to 50. And he wanted you to do it for six months and the reason the 50-yarder was so important to him and to hundreds of other teachers as a great way for recreational players to change their swing or build their swing is through the 50-yarder because, first of all, it's sort of a half of a swing. So it's mm-hmm. less than full. It's also not at full speed. So you may be taking it back three-quarters and going through at 75% of your power to get the ball to go 50 yards, depending on, you know, how far you hit your sandwich. But for everybody, you're going to still need some speed, a feeling of speed after the hit where there's still some acceleration and that it's gathering pace down at the ball, but that it isn't released downward into the ball, that the fastest moment should occur about three feet after the strike when the club is about parallel to the ground again. So the reason Sam liked that and Seve, too, told me the same thing. He said it's a half swing at roughly half speed, and they both said so you can feel what's wrong when you don't turn everything through together. Because what they really preached was, and so many other teachers do, too, is that the club drops down. Now, when Bobby Jones played golf, his club dropped at the rate of 30 feet per second, gravity is 32 feet per second. So Jones literally let the club drop halfway down, drop like gravity, pulling it down, literally. And then his sensation was at impact, that was the point at which everything would start to turn through together, that you wouldn't start with your lower body on this shot, or you wouldn't feel as though you were, but you allow the arms to drop, And at the moment you get to impact, everything then turns through to a finish together. And I would say out of the over 500 teachers I've worked with, if they would agree on one common denominator, generally speaking, it would be yes. That's the shot you really got to be good at because, excuse me, if you can hit a 50-yard pitch and get eight out of ten of them, within 20 feet of the flag after working on it for a few months, well, all of a sudden, if you're 20 feet from the flag after most of your pitches, now that'll be from 30 to 50 yards, anything around the green, you can get it within 20 feet. For sure, you're going to two-putt. You might make a few of them. You're not going to three-putt. 
and you're not going to have to hit your wedge again. And the other thing it does is if you learn the half swing 50-yarder, it actually bleeds into your full swing, and you now have a new swing without having thought about mechanics. So half speed, half swing, but you still have to swing to the finished position. You feel everything turn through together because it's slow enough that you can do so and therefore can self-teach. You know, it's interesting that you say that, and that's a, that's a really great point, and, and obviously I, I know you're exactly right. But I want to go back to something that you said, which was a very interesting sure. point when you, when you look at today's um, golf teaching. You know, you talked about how you were um, – a, a very prominent golfer until you sort of came around uh, the 50 or so teachers. And now suddenly you had all these swing thoughts. And it seems now that they're kind of reversing that course. Do you think at the time when, uh, and, you know, earlier on in, in, in golf instruction, that they were putting too much of that thought process and swing thoughts into the minds of many golfers out there, and now you're seeing them trying to unravel that very thing because now they don't want you thinking, you know, is my arm in this right position or is the club face in the right position? Now they just want you to have that one swing, uh, swing thought, which is what you originally started with. Do you think that they made a mistake by going down that path? Well, I, I, I don't know if I a hundred percent agree that historically checklists have been given out more frequently than feel lists. And I do think right. that over time that the teaching has gravitated towards more feel than swing position lists. So actually I, I, I agree with you in that sense that it's too general to be able to say that there's a common denominator that powerful right teachers because of the advent of all of the statistics and track man and the other machines that spit out numbers now that's become a tremendous industry in terms of its size and in terms of the impact that it's having on people because everybody is rushing to get their numbers from track man so in right. that sense, it's become more complicated because mm-hmm. now to get, you know, now they'll try to maybe give you a different golf club to swing to help you get your numbers, but you're also going to have to make a swing change and then you're back to a list. So now you've got numbers spitting out information as to what the ideal should be. And then between modifying your equipment and making a change in your swing is a rather large event. It's also true. If there are a number of teachers who believe in this, all of the uh, biometric method of teaching where they talk about torque across the shaft throughout the downswing and the through swing. And I think that way overcomplicates it because a recreational player doesn't have time to learn how to build a watch. He just wants to know what time it is. You can't give him that information. He's only going to play one day a week. He may only hit balls no days or one day during the week in addition. So, you know, it's not like you can groove your swing by going to the range um, once a week and then playing on Sunday. 
But if you learn to hit the basic shot of 50 yards and you pretty much just practice that one and warm up with that and you do it for, say, six months to the exclusion of any other work except for long lag putts, which both Sam, Seve, Arnold, Jack, Gary, every single player said to me, you go to the putting green and you pick the longest, hardest lag putts you can find, 100 feet, 110 feet. They said, and then they all said, and then you try to two-putt them. And what you learn when you try to hit those really long lags is that that's really based on feel that the putter head is moving so much more quickly or so it seems it's really just a longer stroke, but it seems that the putter is moving more quickly because you're so far away and you learn Mm. to trust and not do any guiding. So you can't have a list when you're hitting lag putts. It's totally based on feel. And that's, that's a great way to learn to be a good putter and make yourself putt the 12 footers that are left until you can two putt most of the time from a hundred feet. And if you can do that, you're going to make a lot of putts from 12 feet and in. And so those are the two things that you need to work on. But I would still say there's, there's three things, Ted. There's, there's the overcomplication with numbers plus equipment plus swing shades. Then there's the whole mathematical um, interpretation of the swing. And then there's what you and I agree on, which is how can we simplify it? How can we make it easier for the recreational player to get his fives? Because if a recreational player can get his or her fives and shoot around 90, you can enjoy any golf course. If you can't break 110, nothing is fun. But if you can shoot around 90, then every golf course where you play your game, you can shoot your 90 even on a hard golf course because you're going to miss almost all the greens. So the 90 shooter is going to hit a drive, and then should try to put their second shot in the easiest place, 30 yards from the green, as is possible if they're not going to be able to hit the green. To hit the second shot where you leave yourself a 30-yarder or a 40-yarder from the best angle. And you, that you can do. Any player can hit it in, up within 30 or 40 yards of the green to get within a right. good angle of, to have for the 30-yarder. So that's the way you make fives. You, you lay up. You, hit your, you learned how to hit a 50-yard pitching wedge, and then all of a sudden you're making some of those putts. Now you're making fours and fives. And of course, you're going to still make the occasional 6-2, but you learn to be a great lag putter and you learn to hit the 50-yarder, then you're going to basically have one on every hole. If you are a 90-shooter, you're only going to hit a couple of greens. So you're going to have 15 or 16 pitches and that's the 30 to 50 yard pitch. You're going to have one every hole. So what better shot to work on? And no shot bleeds better into your full swing than the 50 yard swing hard pitch. Well said. Let me ask you then, sticking with that, because you know okay. as well as I do, one of the one of the problems that a lot of golfers have. And instructors, I hear this all the time. You know, somebody comes to them for a lesson and they just want to hit it farther. That's all they care about. They don't care about anything else. I just, you know, get me an extra 10, 20, 30 extra yards off the tee. So how do we make that 30, you know, to 50 yard shot and and leg putting, how do we make it more interesting? I mean, people, you know, you can tell them what you just said, and and I agree with you because I understand it. But the average person to them, that's not sexy. That's not exciting they want to belt at 300 yards because they see that, you know, Tiger or they see somebody on, on television doing that. So yeah, how do we, as from, a, and from an instructor standpoint, from an instructional standpoint, how do we make 
the case to say, okay, we can tell them all the facts and figures and, and why it's beneficial, but what do we do differently than maybe what's been going on for the last, say, decade to make that a more appealing um, task for our golfers out there? Well, I think if, if that's our situation, then what I would do with a pupil is I I would make sure that every practice session starts with those pitches. But the thing mm-hmm. that I would then focus on more than anything else that would then translate to longer drives would be to make sure when you're hitting your pitches that you're not exerting downward pressure as you go down from the top towards the ball that you're not exerting pressure down at or to the ball, that you are gathering pace through the hit. The club is gathering speed at the bottom, and the club continues to increase its rate of acceleration until you're about three feet past the ball. And that's where you should hear the whoosh, and that's where you should feel the swing moving the most quickly. Then you take the sand wedge out of the student's hands and you give him his driver. And then you say, now, it's the same principle. The way that you get distance is by not exerting downward pressure with your hands or with anything else towards, down, or to the golf ball, but that you feel that you are gathering a pace through the hit and that the fastest moment will come three or four feet later when you go down, around, and through and around. It's around at the end. It's not up with the arms. It's around. And if right. you learn the pitch shot of 50 yards where you get the sensation of everything turning through together, it's much easier to do it with the driver because it's the same sensation. The only difference between the two shots is – it's more fun to try to hit it farther than it is to hit precise little shots for some people. But for a lot of people who really want to improve their score, it's the 50-yarder because they can get the ball in play somewhere off the tee where they can hit their next shot and get it down somewhere around the green to hit that pitch shot. But if you're looking to increase your driver distance because a lot of people think that's more fun and more important, it's it. I don't think it's either, but I understand the people who feel that way. <laughs> sure. But again, it's that same sensation that the club dropping, gathering pace, and continuing to gather pace until it takes you all the way around and through. That the pace of the swing, the fastest point being so late, it, that's what ensures a full balanced finish. You can't get to a full balanced finish by easing into it. I was tutoring a, a young friend of mine, a teenager, actually he just turned 20. And, and, you know, the things that we worked on were, you know, this business of long lag putts, learning to be a great pitcher from 50 yards and, and getting the sensation of getting to a full balance position because you swung it to there as opposed to eased into it. And the one shot that he had trouble with was a three-quarter shot because he eased it into the three-quarter finish instead of swinging the three-quarter finish. If it's three-quarters, it means go there. 
go to three quarters. Don't ease your way into three quarters because now it's less than full and you're going to take something off of the shot. You swing the three quarters. The reason why recreational players leave every one of their pitch shots short, well, 15 of 18 in a round probably if we had to look at a statistic, always leave them short of the hole. People's chips are short of the hole and people's pitches are short of the hole. And that's because they ease into the finish. You have to go to the finish. You've got to stick the finish, even if it's three quarters. And the way that that works is if you're around the edge of the green, the thing to think about is before you hit the shot, where do I want the club to finish past the impact position so that I will have swung to the spot that will allow me to hit at the distance and the height that I intend to. But you swing to whatever that spot is. So if it's a little chip and it's straight downhill and you know your club's only going to go six inches past the ball to do it successfully, then that's what you think about is where's the finished position of the club on this chip and it'll keep you from being ball bound and it will help you get greater distance control because – you know, it's no good leaving yourself after two good shots on the front, just before the front edge of the green, and hitting a sloppy chip to 12 feet short. You've got to go ahead and swing it to the finished position with authority without being out of control or aggressive or reckless. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really great point, Peter, because, you know, uh, quite often we see that with a lot of our amateur golfers out there is they don't think about the shot ahead of time. So what often ends up happening, as you said, they either – uh, decelerate through the shot because they think, oh, I'm, I'm swinging too hard now, and and or they over-accelerate um, because they haven't thought about that stopping point or that finish point, as you point uh, as you, you mentioned. So that, that's really a great point for, for golfers uh, tuning in tonight um, to really take heed. I want to ask you something as well, Peter, about uh, going back to, um, and I know you've touched on some different different things that pertain to this, but you know, we, we've got a lot of great teachers out there. There's no doubt there's some really, really fine teachers out there. Um, but I'm wondering if some of them maybe are spending uh, – I'll give you a exa- good example. There are some teachers out there that specialize in one area of the game. Dave Pels comes to mind. He specialized in the short game. There's other players that uh, – or other teachers that focused on maybe uh, teaching, uh, you know, juniors to college uh, golfers. Do you think it's it's smarter for a teaching professional to have one area that they primarily focus as opposed to being sort of an overall general? And the reason why I say that is because I think if they're too generalized in their instruction, then they're not, um, you know, they're not really uh, as focused on one one thing specifically that they're too generalized. Do you, do you agree with that, or does that really matter? Oh, I think Peter might be going through a hot spot here. So, uh, as he mentioned, he's. I'm sorry. He's, uh, I, no, I think oh, you're there right. you are. You, you can hear me, right? I, uh, yeah, I can hear you. I, now. I, I, I think. I, sorry. What, 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 what was the actual point of the question at the end, Teddy? I lost you too for a moment. Okay. Um, let me just rephrase it real quick, then. Um, you know, okay, there's a lot ahead. of teachers I most, out there. I got most of it, right? but the last few words. Okay. Oh yeah, the generalist. Um, what, okay, I got it. So. Yeah, I got, it, it, I got it. So, so okay. here's the thing. I think, you know, if you're a dentist, you have to know how to do all the stuff. You know, you you may not have to know how to do root canal, but you got to be able to confront every single problem that you have. 
if you if you play the guitar, you got to be able to do everything on the guitar. You know, if you're going to host a show, you have to really know how to host a show. So, I think a teacher has an obligation to pretty much know everything because every client is different. It's like every patient is different. You're going to have a different temperature and different vinyls. You're going to give a different medicine. So everybody's different. You know, you you can't have a one size fits all formula. So, you know, if I take a look at your swing, I should really be able to, after two or three balls, say to myself, okay, I've got the plan for Ted. And that has to be instant recall of, you know, years of learning your craft and putting in the time like a doctor does when he goes to residency. I think I think right. a teacher has the same obligation to a student to be able to do everything. I mean, you know, a, a, a good player can play all parts of the game. There's no reason a teacher mm-hmm. can't teach all parts of the game successfully. And I think if you specialize in an area, that's fine. But I find that people who specialize in a niche part of the game generally have a method as opposed to look at you and go, all right, what do I do with this guy? I mean, I like right. a teacher who goes, what do I do with this guy? You know, I'll give you an example. If Butch Harmon has one of the 100 best players on tour, anyone number one through 100, and the guy's hitting it funny before he gets to Butch's, by the end of the third shot, he's fixed. It's only going to take two or three balls maximum for Butch Harmon to fix anybody. I don't care if it's Brooks Kepka hitting it sideways or Tiger hitting it sideways. Just three balls. It's just three balls. And the answer is always going to be move it up an inch. You're not completing your backswing. You're rushing a little from the top. It's going to be the same stuff that we hear. It's the same. It's still a golf swing. And, you know, when we have human frailties, physical ones. And so sometimes we think we're doing something and we're not actually doing what we think we're doing. So a really good teacher, the better the player is, the fewer balls and the shorter the lesson. And then I think you can err on the other side, too, of making it too long. How many shots is the right number before you start to lose your concentration or you lose your balance a little bit? And, right. You know, and did this client who's here today, is he is he fit? Does he go to yoga? Does he do something? That, does he walk? To, does it look like his lower body is supporting, you know, the swinging motion of his arms and his torso? So I think a teacher literally has an obligation to look at each student as though they were a patient coming into the office and they get, it's a start from scratch deal, but you got to be able to do it in two seconds. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the nature of our conversations is always, you know, unless we're talking privately on the phone, and then there's short bursts back and forth, and we give each other a hard time. But when we do the radio <laughs> show, you, ge- you generally right. ask me a, a really well-reasoned, thoughtful, sound, longest question, which deserves the same in return. So, you know, we have a different relationship when we do this, but I, I, I am definitely of the view that your skill set as a host is such that if I turned this on his head and started giving you short answers, you'd figure it out. You'd figure out something to do. You would do it right that second. You'd do it by instinct because, because you've trained yourself to do this. You know how to do this. Right. So you know what the variables are. And you're going to get, and I'm certain that you've had, many guests who are either not interesting or they're a little nervous or they're too, they tend towards brevity. 
Um, right. You know, the only one I know goes long is is me. But uh, <laughs> you know, so you know, you know how to handle the interviewee, and so the teacher has the the, the responsibility to be able to completely dissect exactly what the swing problem is right away, and the best way to reach this student. Is it with a picture of something? Is it watch me? Is it feel this? Is it try this drill? you got to figure that out right now. You've got two seconds. You know, when I used to be on television, you know, basically, you know, you don't think about it actively. But, you know, when somebody said something to me in response to any question or anything I might have said to them on the live show, and then it was my turn to talk, you know, the general idea is, you got one second to think of if you had the whole rest of your life to come up with the answer you're going to give in one second, that the one you're going to come up with in one second is as good as anything you could think of if you had another 30 years to work on it. And so that was kind of, you know, the theory is whatever you say back has got to be so damn brilliant that it's just unbelievable. And now that's something you can't make happen, you know, any more than you can make right. a happen. You have to... Uh, allow it to occur. And again, that word allow is really important in the gospel. You allow it to drop. You allow it to gather pace. There is no rushing. You know, and you and and on TV, I never felt the sense of, oh, you know, what do I do now? I know you've never felt that I've heard your show enough and done enough to know your style. So, you know, I think the answer to your question is a teacher has an obligation to be able to look into his medicine bag and exactly the right thing out of the bag of tricks for that client that minute right now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I want to I want to circle back just a little bit. Uh, you know, you, sure. you talked about things like biomechanics and numbers and things like that. One of the other things that that I've always thought, and and there, there's a place for everything. And I think that one of the the concerns, and it's starting to 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 dissipate a little bit in in the general public, if you will, but uh, obviously it's still out on tour, but technology has become a, uh, a, a tool that many golf professionals use, whether it be TrackMan, FlightScope, whatever you, know, you want to throw out there. Do you yeah. think there was a point that teachers relied too heavily on those numbers and on that technology and got away from what you just talked about? And depends, depends who the student is, I think, Ted. You know, you know, if it's a professional, well, then you're talking about, you know, an athletic freak, really, because, you know, the thing that great professionals have an innate ability to do is to use hand-eye coordination that they've been blessed with. And then they learn, you know, but all of them, all of them have the hand-eye coordination, you know. So uh, I think that... I think that it depends on who you're teaching. So if it's a touring pro who can handle the information in a manner that you know he likes to handle it, then your problem is solved. But if you start to take those numbers down to the recreational side of the game, which is 99.99% of everybody who plays a recreational player shoots 90, then it's a different deal because, you know, everybody has their best way of processing information and as a teacher, I think you have an obligation to figure that out really quickly. How does a student process information? Come on, right now, what, what's the best way? And uh, so I think, the, I think the worse the player, 
the less focus should be on anything that involves numbers or formulas or lists. You know, I, I see when you're, you know, if the, if the client's not breaking a hundred, he has to, he's going to have to learn the 50 yard pitch. Quite frankly, it's yep. my favorite shot. I mean, I, I really, you know, cause I know I'm going to have, you know, especially if I don't play often and I very rarely play these days. So I know I'm going to have a dozen pitches for sure. You know, maybe I'll hit five greens or six greens. But I'm going to have, a, you know, for sure a dozen pitches. And it's my favorite shot because I don't care how tough the shot is. I don't care what the angle is. I don't care where I am in the bunker. To me, it's an exciting shot to figure out exactly, you know, in two seconds, exactly what you're going to do with this shot. How am I going to hit it? Where am I going to land it? How's it going to run out? What does it feel like? But, you know, without taking more than a couple of seconds to go through that, that process. So, for me, I think it's the most fun shot in the game because the angles are all so different, and sometimes you screw up and you've got mm-hmm. left yourself the wrong angle. So now you got to hit a super shot that goes higher than you'd like to, you know, have to hit it because it requires a bigger swing from a short distance. So, for me, that's, I mean, that's my favorite shot. I, you know, if I go to go to practice, I can hit, you know, 50 or 70 little pitches, but I can't hit 50 or 70 drivers. I get hit 10 drivers, but not 50. So, you know, so it's easier <laughs> to work on your game with less with less of a swing that will translate into longer drives. That's the thing. If you learn the 50-yarder, you're going to be a better driver of the golf ball because your swing is going to be better. If your swing is better, it can gather pace, and it will also be an efficient swing and a more more efficient swing because you've learned to take it halfway back and take it through and, and allow pace to gather. I know I've said it a million times, but yep. most recreational players don't understand it conceptually. It's almost like when you're swinging the club, if there's going to be a whoosh, you want the whoosh to be as late as possible in the swing. You know, it should be when you're on the very far side of the ball, you know, when the club is, you know, already past parallel on the through swing, that's where the little noise should be. And most players have their whoosh before the ball. And that's right. because they're expending downward energy, which we've talked about. So I think depending on the player, I, I would the, the, the worse the player, the less the science, the more let's teach him the basic feel of golf's basic mm-hmm. shot which will then be able to work itself into with the other parts of his game. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, so what did you do? And, and this is a sort of a conundrum that a lot of people face. You, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you were a, a very accomplished player and then, you know, you, you got to, got in front of, you know, 50 or so plus uh, yep. instructors and had all of these wing, swing thoughts. What did you do to sort of unravel that in your mind? And, and, you know, obviously you may not be at the same level you were at that point, but what did you do or how did you unravel that for you? Well, the first and most important thing was to get fired from the golf channel because if I don't get fired from the golf channel, then I'm not going to ever get my golf swing back. Okay, so I took care of that in 2002. And then, and then I continued to probably play at that point mid eighties golf. I had, you know, you know, it definitely still was 10 shots higher than before the golf channel. So a few years went by and I had spent a lot of time with Seve, you know, right after the turn of the century. And we talked a lot about mm-hmm. pitching and, 
I told them what Sam said about taking six months or a year off and hitting nothing but ditches. So a few years ago, I, I was shooting at a, I was a member that I'm now not a member. I could just, it, they, they did a redo and you can't break a thousand. It's so hard. It's unbelievable. So I was shooting like 91 or 92. So I recorded my 90 day moving average at the course and it was either 91 or 92 but again, mm-hmm. on a normal course, it would have been 84 or 5. It's just it was insane. So I went, okay, that's it. I'm not, I'm not shooting 90 anymore. And for 11 months, the only shot I hit was 50 yards and in. And after two months or so, I started to get better at it in terms of being consistent and starting right. the self the self teaching part of feeling your way through the swing, which you can because it's a little shorter and it's a little slower. It goes back to the original theory. So I did it Mm -hmm. for 11 months. And the the reason I cut it off one month soon, I think it was because, oh, they were going to get rid of, they were going to redo the chipping area. So I had 11 months. So for my next 90 days after the 11 months was over, my scoring average was just under 80. So I had dropped a shot a month, and I had fewer three putts because I was a really good pitcher of the ball. I was hitting almost all the fairways. 13 out of 14, 12 out of 14, no worse than that. And and I could, and if I had a shot where I knew I couldn't put it on the green or didn't think I could, I got really good at leaving the ball in a position where I now had the shot that I'd been practicing for a year. And I got, let me tell you, I had rounds where, you know, I had nine up and downs kinds of things. I mean, just like it was insane. And so my scoring average literally dropped by a dozen shots. And so I don't play much right now, but if I was going to go just play tomorrow without, but I could hit 20 pitches before I play, I'll shoot 81. If I just hit random shots on the green, on the driving range before I play, I'll shoot 81. But if I can have 30 days to work on pitches, then then I'll break then then I'll break 80. It'll be a question of what will I shoot. So I learned over an 11 month period what Sam taught me and what Sebi reinforced was you got to you have to learn that shot. And once you learn that shot, then that will be your full swing too. And it's the only way you can change your swing. You can't change it through thinking about positions. It has to be changed based on a repetition of a successful feeling, which comes from mm-hmm. the appropriate sequence of events throughout a half of a golf swing. And so, you know, so I knew three or four months into it that it was going to be unbelievable. And I enjoyed it so much that I was never even tempted to go over to the range at a seven iron because I was still playing on Sundays and I'd go hit my pitches before the round. And then I would take the driver out on the first tee and I hit right down the middle and, you know, with a really good golf swing. And so my swing changed without me having a list, but rather self teaching my way through a half swing from 50 yards until I was able to blend the parts from impact forward or so that's how it feels. Now, the reality is, yes, there's going to be some movement with your lower body, but you won't really feel it 
until you've got an impact. And then I feel my belly button turn to the left, and I, and I feel my belt buckle turn to the left. And a great way to start that swing, by the way, is, you know, so what would be if, if I were to give somebody a, a, a lesson right now who is going to go work on it tomorrow, I would say, okay, the first thing to work on when you learn the 50-yarder is you have to make a turn. So what does that mean? What it really means is that if you start your swing by moving the club and your belly, if you're moving by moving your belly button one inch to the right, just think about this now or do it if you're listening. Mm. If you move your belly button one inch to the right, then you've already loaded your right side. If you look at slow motion tape of Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus, or especially Nick Faldo, because he liked to consciously think about right. the belly button to start a swing, but it's one inch. It's not a foot. It's not six inches. It's not turn. It's not wind up. It's not any of that. You're just putting the key in the ignition and turning it. And the way you turn it is just the way that, that I've described it. You turn your belly button one inch to the right. And then eventually, and so that makes sure now you've turned. You've, your weight is already at one inch. Now move sufficiently into your right side. And your arms swing up and your turn is happening because the belly button started it, and then the rest of your upper body just picks up the tempo automatically. You don't have to think about it. And then the second part of the process is learning to let the club drop. And then, ideally, when you get good at dropping the club down to impact, which is essentially all that you're trying to feel like you're doing, at that point, the belly button starts to move to the left. But instead of it, you thinking of it as an inch, you just let it go and let it keep going. So it's one inch to the right, then you feels like it gets square again in impact, and when it does, just keep the belly button going to the left. But if you do the teeny little one inch to start, everything will go into motion. And so that's the first part because it's very easy to make a little half swing but not make a turn, and people go, well, what does that actually mean? It just means turn right. the belly button one inch, and you can do it as slowly as you want. You can do it at any speed you want. It'll go more than one inch, but you just take it to one inch, and then it has a mind of its own, and it'll go where it's supposed to go. But that would be the first. That would be if you're struggling to, to break 90 or you're not breaking 100, you've got to learn to turn, and that's one inch of the belly button to the right, and you've got to learn the little half shot. And depending on your age and how far you hit it, it's a sand wedge or a pitching wedge. Yeah, that's some great uh, great advice. And, you but know, that's where there life are starts. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, and a good, a good example of that is, you know, when you watch, this is why it's so, uh, you know, you pointed out earlier in the show, you talked about how, you know, you went and watched Sam Snead when really nobody was watching. And when I used to go to PGA Tour events earlier on, uh, you know, I've been to too many lately, but um, I, I would go to the range and watch these guys, and I never saw of any of them pull out their driver as the first club in the bag that they were going to work on. They always pulled out their wedges or, you know, uh, one of their short clubs. And this is the problem that you see, Peter, with a lot of amateurs is they work the opposite. They want to hit, you know, they want to see how far they're going to hit their driver. And they're not really working on, as you pointed out earlier and, and several times, on the area of the game that's really going to help them the most. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think you're talking about, you know, what we're doing is assigning niches to everybody who plays golf. And so, you know, if you're over 50, yeah, you, you, yes, you'd like to hit it as far as you can hit it, but that's not the focus. If you're over 50, you're trying to make good swings, you're trying to score, you know you need to work on your short game, so it's easy for me to get somebody to do that. You know, but if you're in your 30s and you're flexible yeah. and you're strong and you take good care of yourself, those are the guys who are trying to hit at 8 million miles. And you know what? I don't blame right. them. You know, the, no. the equipment... You know the equipment is such that if you're a young, you know if you're a young person now, you know and and you're in your 30s and you're in good shape and you make a reasonable pass at it, you know it's really fun to see how far these guys can hit the ball. Not the tour players. That's that's a separate subject, and I think they should be playing sure. smaller headed drivers in a ball that goes less far than it does now. Period. Just the 200 guys from the tour and the four majors. That's it. Doesn't change for anybody else manufacturers can keep making everything they can to help the average Joe who always needs the help and who isn't any better than he was 30 years ago. Just that the tour right. players only use five clubs now. And, you know, the point of demarcation is probably the year 2000. After 2000, players didn't use 14 clubs anymore. And now we've gotten to the point where professionals are using five clubs. But, yes, with regard to hitting it hard, it's a group of young people who are trying to hit it hard. You know, it's not it's not Murray Schmidlap who's 82 years old. You know, and he, you know, looks like he needs a square walker to get to the practice tee. You know, he's just trying to get even get the ball up in the air. So it depends who it is. You know, and Mrs. Dinkowitz isn't trying to hit at 250 either. She she just like to get the ball up in the air and not make a fool of herself. So it depends right. on who you are. But yeah, there's a group for whom distance is the holy grail, and you can't blame them because it's the time of their yeah. life that you don't know until later that you don't get right. to keep that forever, but they know they've got it now <laughs> and they think they'll have it forever. And then one day you wake up and all of a sudden you're not as young and you don't hit it as far. So I don't blame them at all. And, you know, and that's, that's a great group to market to. And, and, you know, one third and you and I have discussed the statistic that one third of the new people coming into the game are young women. Yep. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, distance is you know, you should, if a teacher gets a new student, a young person, I would emphasize distance over accuracy at the beginning. And mm-hmm. Arnold learned to hit it hard. Jack learned to hit it hard. Then they learned to hit it straight. Faldo mm-hmm. learned to hit it straight, but then he never was able to learn how to hit it far as a relative to like a Greg Norman or somebody else. Right. So, the important thing early is 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 keeping the is keeping that speed up, striving for distance. But you strive for distance by gathering pace. It doesn't change when you're 10 years old. It's still the same deal. The club drops down, and you're trying not to expend downward energy, which is not easy to do. You know because mm-hmm. everybody has a little bit of a hit impulse, or a lot of people do. You want to hit the ball, and all of a sudden your grip tightens and your wrist tightens. You know, and Arnold used to talk to me all the time about that with Jack. He said, Jack Nicholas had the greatest waggle, he said, because his grip was medium firm. He said, but his wrists were super soft. And he said, Jack had the greatest waggle of anybody who he ever played with. And Arnold, of course, played with everybody. 
And he said, because right. his forearms were so relaxed. And he said, relaxed arms are fast arms. And he also mm-hmm. said to me once, he said, you can have fast hands. You can have strong hands. You can have soft hands. So you have to figure out who you are, which of those three things is you. Are you a soft-handed player like a Semi Ballesteros? Are you firm like a Tom Watson? You're somewhere in the middle like Jack Nicklaus. So, but I think for kids coming into the game right now, especially with the young women, I think it, it says great things about the potential of, I don't think growing the game is, is the right term, but just keeping the game alive. You know, golf was always right. a good sport. Again, I told you when I went to see Sam, nobody else was at the driving range. I mean, literally no other member of the public ventured down to watch Jack Nicklaus hit balls, Arnold Palmer. It was crazy. And, uh, yeah. and that was true at major championships. I remember in 84 at Wingfoot when Fuzzy beat Greg, and I was with a friend of mine, and on the first tee, and we said, okay, I'm each in two hours under the clock, and we'll go to the back nine. I saw him like 50 times in nine holes. I mean, now, you know, you go to a tournament, you can't even find the person you came with, you know, and they're standing right, right next to you because it's all so <laughs> insane. But, you know, especially like right. Phoenix or something. But I'm telling you, yeah. nobody was there. I used to walk Jack Nicholas's practice rounds with him when he came to San Diego to play in the Tournament of Champions at La Costa, where I was the club champ in the 70s. And I just walked right down the fairway with Jack and his caddy, Angelo, and introduced myself and stayed out of his way and asked him questions at the appropriate time. You know, I had to to start training for Golf Talk Live, you know, because I knew one day that the most important thing was that you have the name of the show. And so as a young man, I thought, how can I help Ted now? With his radio show later, all right, I'm going to teach. So I started interviewing guys then, Jack Nicklaus, Gene Sarazen. I played with Gene in 1972. You know, so I tried, you know, I tried to bring you a legacy with that. That's all. Right. And you did. You did very well. Well, you know what, Peter, I hate to say this. (laughs) You certainly did indeed. I hate to say this, but we're out of time. And uh, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed. My clock says 10 minutes have gone by. No. <laughs> yeah, that was really that was really great, Teddy. I I really enjoyed being with you. I was really looking forward to it, and I intentionally didn't ask you what you wanted to talk about because I didn't want to know. It's always more fun to not know, especially with you. So, uh, thanks for making it so great for me. I, uh, you know, your your listeners are lucky. Your questions are great. You bring out the best in your guests. You certainly bring out the best that I have. I I'm always thrilled to be with you, and thank you very much again. I, my pleasure, Peter. It's always uh, it's always my pleasure to have you on. You've, you're uh, you're you're definitely a, a rarity in this in this game, and and I like your your honesty and and your direct. I like the fact that um, you know, uh, unlike a lot of people in this industry, you actually get it, and um, that's that's uh, that's something to uh, to, to share. Um, Peter Kessler, ladies and gentlemen, my very special guest this evening. Thank you, my friend, and I will be in touch with you soon. Have a great evening, and it sounds like you're home, so uh, go and relax, and uh, and we're done for the evening. Great to hear your voice. Thank you, my friend. All right. Thank you, Peter. All right, Peter Kessler, uh, known as The Voice, uh, a, a well-known golf announcer for many years on the Golf Channel, and uh, Still bringing that that voice to uh, to the ears, and I appreciate uh, all that he 
brings to the show and just a wealth of knowledge and some great uh, great stories and, and even brought a few um, well thought and well um, intended tips to the audience tonight. I know a lot of you right now are thinking, well, I can't wait to get back out on the golf course and I just want to get out there and play or I just want to get outside and be able to do things and I know it's a difficult time for many, many people. So a couple things I'm going to tell you before we uh, sign off for, for the evening. Uh, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and or women of golf because I obviously, as you know, I have both shows. Uh, go, uh, golf Talk Live, of course, airs uh, every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central live on blogtalkradio.com network as well as some other uh, great platforms, which you'll hear in a moment. Uh, and as well does the Women of Golf show, which is my other show, uh, that I co-host with my good friend, uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller. That airs live every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network. So uh, tune in live every uh, Tuesday and Thursday at those times. Um, and if you missed tonight's live broadcast or any of the other shows, go to blogtalkradio.com and search both Golf Talk Live and Women of Golf and all of the archived uh, shows are there in the on-demand section, so you can scroll down if you've missed some shows and you're looking for something uh, to listen to to get your golf uh, game tuned up and ready to go uh, when we get back out there. Uh, lots of great shows there. Uh, and also, um, for those of you that uh, like to read some good articles and things, uh, go to uh, golftipsmag.com, uh, which is the uh, official website for the Golf Tips Magazine, which uh, I now own. Uh, there's a lot of great uh, videos and a lot of great tips uh, from some of the best uh, teachers, particularly the top 25 teachers in America uh, by Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, lots of good stuff there. And if you're not a subscriber, go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe to the magazine. You can subscribe uh, to the print and the digital if you want uh, and or either. So uh, make sure you do that. And there's also an e-newsletter as well. Make sure you sign up for the e-newsletter so we'll give you all of the great uh, tips and, uh, and uh, lots of good information uh, coming right into the inbox of your email. So make sure you do that as well. Um, on behalf of uh, my special guests, um, Peter Kessler, and also uh, the guys on the Coach's Corner panel, John Decker and Tim Kramer, we want to thank you very much for tuning in tonight. Stay safe, everybody, and I hope you come back and join us next Thursday right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless, everybody. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. Or listen on any of the following social media platforms. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.